0: This is a Triple J Podcast. (laughs) Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Are you thinking about grey hairs yet? When do you think they might start popping up? When you're 35? Maybe when you're 40? What about when you're a teenager? Because in the past, there's been a big focus on covering up grey hairs as a young person. If they have popped up when you've been really young, there's been... All of this attention on making sure you can do whatever you can to hide them. But now, more and more so-called grey fluences are encouraging people to embrace this change. Later on the Hack podcast, we're going to be delving into this, speaking to some of these influences and hearing from people who have gone grey young, get their thoughts and feelings on it. Also coming up, we're getting the rundown on a global crisis that never gets enough attention around the world first though. Hey, there's nobody driving this Tesla. There's literally nobody in it. Where's it going? On Triple Jack. Are you one of those people hanging out for driverless cars? Imagine the possibilities. You're tired. Maybe you've had a bit too much to drink. All good. The technology has you sorted. There's definitely a division though, isn't there? Between those who are really into this idea and those who are dead against it. Well, driverless cars are already a thing. There's some big testing that's going on here in Australia as well. How far are we away, though, from mainstream adoption? We're going to try to answer that question soon. But first, reporter Angel Parsons has been taking a look at what's going on with this technology around the world.
1: Call me a control freak, but I like to be the one driving. Like when someone else is driving, I don't like to sleep or even look at my phone. So the thought of this. Me casually ordering a driverless taxi in San Francisco. Is a bit stressful. Ordered
2: a self-driving car to take me to the airport. My first Waymo ride. I requested a ride. And
3: it looks like a normal car, except all the cameras inside and outside. The idea of
1: the driverless car has been around for decades. But things have really ramped up, particularly in San Francisco in the US where robo-taxis have been operating with some restrictions like whether they can actually charge a fare or be accessed by the public and operating at certain times of day.
0: On San Francisco Street, something straight out of a sci-fi film is happening. People are able to hail cabs with no driver.
3: Okay, here we go. It says your car is on the way in four minutes. Oh, there it is. I see it. I guess I shouldn't wave because what's the point, right? What's the point?
1: Some people love it, but it's also caused some serious chaos. There have been reports of traffic jams and blocking emergency service vehicles. But we can do
3: something about it. First, find a cone, then gently place it on the car's hood. Make sure their car is empty and repeat. Later this week
1: in California, state regulators will vote on whether to expand contracts with driverless car providers. And so people have been protesting by disabling the cars with the humble orange traffic cone. But what's happening closer to home? Did you ever expect to see something like this in Mount Isa?
4: Absolutely not. (laughs) Maybe in a dump truck over on the hill, but nowhere else.
1: Yeah, we're heading to the Queensland outback, where the most advanced autonomous car in Australia, called Zoe 2, is being tested. What did you think about this car ride today?
4: I thought it was awesome. Really good, yeah? The technology today is absolutely fabulous, and I can see this going further.
1: Fully autonomous cars aren't on the roads yet in Australia and legislation will have to change to allow the concept and tech to be improved, but ISA residents who tried the car out say the concept could help with accessibility and long-haul drives.
4: Reduce your concentration, go to sleep, have something to eat, it would be a lot easier having to stay alert that whole time.
1: And Amit Trivedi, the project lead for Queensland's transport department, reckons these kinds of cars could be hitting our streets in the fairly near future.
4: Currently, there are a lot of various tech companies that are working on this challenge. We think that level four kind of automation, the kind of automation you see in Zoe 2 now, is likely to be introduced in Australian highway kind of environment in next decade.
0: Hack. On Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update. Big shout-out to the Mount Isa News team as well for their help. We've got lots of messages coming through on this one. Mitch has sent us a message. He says, I've been following developments in self-driving cars for years now. There's a big debate on which company has the best approach, Google or Tesla. Another person, surely autonomous vehicles, can't be less safe than half the people currently licensed and on the road. That was from Christian. And Anton... He's pretty excited. He says, I can't wait to get into my mobile lounge room and head out to wherever I want to go as the vehicle takes me there. It's true. Maybe you will be able to kick back one day and not do much at all. So how will we see this space develop over the next few years, especially here in Australia? Professor Michael Milford is an expert in autonomous vehicles. He's with Queensland University of Technology and very kindly he's with us now. G'day, Michael. Thanks for coming on Hack. G'day, thanks for having me on the program. We're seeing these big steps forward in the US, already driverless cars on the road there. When could we see that happen properly here in Australia?
2: So when you hear about the news on the US, it's important to note that driverless cars are in only a very, very tiny fraction of the state, so it's not as if they're everywhere yet. In Australia, we don't really have much driverless car activity beyond some trials like the ones you covered in that news brief and some sort of experiments with various transport providers.
0: So is there a bit of a battle going on in terms of the technology? Like we were hearing, you know, between Google and Tesla, what's going on now in terms of the best approach?
2: So what's happened in the last five years is because this is a very expensive business to be in, there's really only maybe half a dozen credible companies working in this space now, uh, the ones who have enough cash to fund this sort of uh, research and development, and they have very different approaches. So you could say that Waymo, which is a spin out of Google, has a very different approach to um, Elon Musk's uh, Tesla. We do not know for certain which one of those approaches is going to be more successful in the long run because we don't have the robot cars around us everywhere yet.
0: How do you see this space developing in Australia in the next few years? Like, what's next? We've already seen some trials going on in, you know, more isolated parts of the country. How do you see it playing out? One of the
2: funny things that's happened in the last few years is there's been a bit of disappointment that the technology hasn't rolled out faster internationally, and so some of the hype and money has sort of died down a little bit. Ultimately, I think that's a great thing for Australia because some of the use cases of autonomous vehicles, for example, providing transport in regional or remote areas where there just wouldn't be any transport otherwise, uh, is a fantastic use case, but something that hasn't really had as much attention uh, as it's getting now, especially in places like Australia
0: got a lot of messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, just got back from San Francisco. The streets are full of driverless cars, both spooky and cool. Somebody else says, I'll be fuming if I get hit by a robot car. Um, Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't be happy either way, I wouldn't think. And someone else says, as someone with migraines, I'm all for the driverless cars. I was really dizzy on the drive home. It's no good to hear. Well, I I wanted to ask that, Michael. What do you think the major benefits of driverless vehicles are for a country like Australia? Yeah.
2: Look, we still lose around a thousand people on our roads every year, which is incredibly tragic. In the US, it's 30 to 40,000. And internationally, it's like over a million people a year. So obviously, if we can get tech that actually works and is safer out on the roads, there's the obvious health benefits um, um, from that. But there's also the mobility benefits. So a lot of people can't drive, uh, kids, um, elderly, some elderly people, some people who have um, limitations in whether they can operate a vehicle. If they can, be more mobile because of that technology, that's a huge positive impact for their quality of life.
0: Yeah, someone on the text line saying this, driverless vehicles can be great for people who can't drive for various reasons, including disabilities. Uh, The NDIS doesn't provide much in the way of transport. That's someone on the text line there. I guess one of the big challenges for us, Michael, would be making sure that our infrastructure is up to scratch. Like in Australia, we have lots of roads that are pretty dodgy, pretty rough, especially in the bush, and that might prove to be pretty problematic.
2: So there's a few different opinions on this. My opinion, which is shared by a lot of other people, is if you really have to spend a lot of money modifying your infrastructure to make the technology work, maybe you shouldn't be adopting that technology in the first place. A good technology doesn't require you to change everything for it. And really what most of the key players in this field are trying to do is make technology that will just roll out on our existing roads without you having to install billions of dollars of extra infrastructure. That's the the main aim.
0: What about accidents and things in testing has that been a big issue where uh, manufacturers have noticed that there have been major issues with the cars going a bit rogue
2: yeah, this is fascinating and it's incredibly difficult to get really trustworthy data on this because the way people measure accidents and near accidents is not uniform around the world. Uh, one of the things that happened early on is that these autonomous vehicles tended to brake really differently to how we'd expect the human driver to brake and so they were constantly being rear-ended by people in normal cars uh, because the car would brake suddenly in a situation where you
0: might not expect a person to brake. Someone on the text line saying also with trucks in big mines, for instance, like there's a lot of testing going on already in that space. So it's not just the very personal experience, it would also be a big win for business potentially as well, Michael.
2: And, and we've worked extensively in this area. Australia has genuinely led the world in automation of some of their mining machinery equipment, the trucks, the underground trucks. Uh, Australia has literally led the world and then it's been adopted in other places uh, and it's making uh, a, a, an actual concrete difference to the viability of those companies that operate in Australia.
0: How complicated do you think the switch would be? Michael, in terms of if you've got uh, traditional cars on the road with driverless cars, and then, you know, people are making the switch over or, you know, manufacturers having to make the switch, do you think that'd be really complicated? Is that something that's being discussed a lot at the moment?
2: It is something that's important and it's being discussed again. But again, if it really is a good technology that's worthwhile adopting, the switch shouldn't be too painful. If you think about the switch to streaming services from most people owning their own movies and music to streaming services, um, when the tech worked, that was a relatively seamless transition. And we'd hope the same would occur with autonomous vehicles as they're introduced.
0: Michael, can you picture a day where all vehicles on the roads are are autonomous?
2: Yeah, I definitely can. It's possible. And one of the interesting things about this is if you had a situation where most of the vehicles on the road were autonomous, but they weren't all autonomous, it's probably actually going to be safer to move to a situation where they all are autonomous rather than a few that are still driven by people.
0: Well, hey, there's definitely a lot of interest in this one. We've got the tech sign kicking off at the moment. Professor Michael Milford from Queensland University of Technology, thank you so much for coming on Hack and breaking that down. Cheers, it was great to chat. We've got some more messages. Someone says, what about the impact of all the jobs for driverless cars? No Uber drivers, no taxis, bus drivers, all losing their jobs. Nobody talks about that. Somebody else says, Most people need to learn how to drive, not get a robot to do it. Good luck, humanity. Very pessimistic (laughs) on the text line there. Another person says, Sure, driverless cars are great, but I'm holding out for teleportation. Hack.
3: They produce one-third of the world's food. Meanwhile, they struggle to feed themselves.
0: On Triple J. You know, the world is not short of crises, whether it's war, pandemic, climate, of course. There's one, though, that's impacted by all of these things, but it rarely gets a look in. And maybe that's because it's something that makes people in developed countries feel really uncomfortable. World hunger. And an important new report from the United Nations has been released this week looking into it. It's called The State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World. And this report reveals an extra 122 million people have been pushed into hunger over the past four years. It's incredible amount of people. Like, it's hard to even fathom. And, you know, there was this goal of ending world hunger by the end of this decade. But the report shows we're nowhere on track to make that happen. It's devastating news. So what's being done about it? Lucia Goldsmith is the head of humanitarian at Oxfam Australia. And she's with me now. Lucia, welcome to Hack.
3: Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on your program.
0: The numbers are so overwhelming. Hundreds of millions of people hungry around the world. Are we able to put it into a bit of perspective? What proportion of the world is facing this crisis?
3: Yeah, you're right. The numbers really are staggering. Um, the figures are, are very, very bleak. So um, we, it's over 3.1% billion people, or 42% of the world population, um, that were unable to afford an adequate diet in 2021.
0: Wow. And I've read that's, you know, three out of 10 people on the planet, three out of 10 people on the planet suffered from moderate or severe food insecurity last year. It's just staggering. What are the worst affected parts of the world, Lucia?
3: This is really a global problem, uh, but Africa remains the worst affected region. Um, It's one in five people um, across the continent um, facing hunger, um, which is more than twice the global average.
0: And what about here in Australia? Are there issues uh, right here at home?
3: People in Australia have been also experiencing um, similar challenges, Uh, perhaps not as severe as in some of the other parts um, of the globe, Um, definitely not as severe as uh, parts of um, Somalia, Kenya, and Ethiopia. Um, But um, the the drivers are the same across the globe. Um, It's the COVID pandemic, um, it's the changing climate that has devastating consequences for farmers um, and pastoralists. And um, it's inflation um, and the economic instability. So that has affected people in Australia as well.
0: What are developed countries doing at the moment? Like if we look at Australia, what are we doing to help out uh, other countries around the world? Is this being discussed at the highest levels? Obviously, the United Nations is talking about it now and they've been talking about it for a while. Where is this in the Global Conversation ranking?
3: There is a global conversation happening, but unfortunately, there are so many crises um, across the globe at the moment um, that the system is really stretched and and unable to respond um, to support some of these most vulnerable uh, people across the globe. Um, The Australian government has committed um, over $80 million um, um, to address um, hunger across um, Africa and the Middle East. Uh, But... um, they really need to invest um, a lot more.
0: I did see the number of people facing hunger has actually stabilised after a big increase in 2019 and 2020. That was in this report. Can you explain why that's happened?
3: It is because um, we have been able to... Deal with um some of the effects of the of the pandemic. Um, you know, a lot of the people that have been affected work in informal um sectors, they're da- daily laborers, and they are the people who were most affected by some of the COVID restrictions. They were unable to leave their homes and um earn an income. Um, and so the situation has improved um slightly, but many of the challenges, such as the changing climate and conflicts across the globe, continue to have. Um, devastating impact on communities.
0: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Alicia Goldsmith, who's the head of humanitarian at Oxfam Australia we're talking about this big report that's been released by the United Nations about global hunger the this huge issue that has been affecting the world forever but you know so many more people like millions and millions more people are now going hungry than were you know a year ago Lucia Will we ever eradicate hunger around the world? Because there are these goals. Is it likely it's going to happen?
3: We have the goals and a world without hunger is definitely possible. Um, what we are missing is the, is the political will um, and and the investment um, to implement um, solutions at, at scale. If we make it a priority, um, we really are um, able to eradicate hunger. Um, we know what the solutions are. We know what works. It is supporting small scale farmers. Um, it is supporting communities so that they're able to adapt to Climate change; um, it is increasing people's access to um, finance, but that all uh, requires investment, um, and at the moment, that's not forthcoming.
0: Somebody on the text line says this has been an issue my whole life. It's horrible. A lot of other comments coming through from people who, yeah, are devastated to hear this. To hear that, in many ways, the problem, while it may have stabilised a little bit, it's still it's still huge that people are going hungry. Lucia, what about the technology to help people? Like surely that must be improving the way we're able to nourish people and deliver these supplies to places that are struggling. The technology must be adapting as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The technology has improved significantly. Um, the science has advanced as well. So um, we know how we can adapt uh, people's livelihoods um, to the changing climate. What we're lacking um, is, the, is the funds.
0: Why do you think we don't hear more about this? Because, I mean, you work at Oxfam Australia, I'm guessing you're constantly trying to get the message out there. You're talking to different groups, different people, but it rarely is making news headlines. I mean, this report has because it's so dramatic, but why do you think it is that so much of the world is not hearing about this huge problem?
3: It has been a challenge um, to get attention and and to um, for, for people to focus on this on this issue. I, I think you know it is happening um, far away. It is often difficult for people in Australia um, or other parts of the world to imagine um, what it is like for some of these communities in um, Somalia or Ethiopia that are dealing with a fifth um, failed rainy season and that are struggling really to feed um, their kids and extended family members, uh, people who have left their homes um, because they're running away from conflict. Um, and there's so much else um, going on. There are so many crises that are competing for uh, attention um, that I think uh, for you know something like this that has been such a long-term problem um, it has been really difficult to get people to pay attention.
0: What are the priorities for Oxfam at the moment? <laughs>
3: The priorities for Oxfam at the moment are, are, are first of all, to keep people alive. So um, Oxfam has longstanding programs um, in um, many of the affected areas, particularly in Eastern Africa, where we're working with local partners and local communities to ensure that people are able to have access um, to adequate food, um, that there is access to clean water and sanitation, um, and that we are also working with them in the longer term um, to help them adapt to the changing climate um, so that their livelihoods are um, able to adapt um, to this new normal. But also we are advocating at national and and global levels um, so that the countries who are the most responsible um, for um, the uh, consequences of the climate change um, and the largest share of the emissions um, actually pay um, and provide um, compensation um, to these countries that are bearing the brunt um, of the changing climate.
0: Well, look, we appreciate uh, your update on this. Lucia Goldsmith, the Head of Humanitarian at Oxfam Australia, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks. And we've got some messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, it's taxes, global hunger can be solved. Another person, why don't the billionaires help? Surely one person doesn't need that much money. And similar kind of message from Paul, who says Elon Musk could end world hunger four times over and still be a billionaire.
5: Hack. She says to me, you've got grey hair. I say, you're joking me.
0: On Triple Jack. If you're in your early 20s, going grey is probably the last thing on your mind. Surely that's not something you've got to worry about for decades, right? But then you catch a little glimpse of something in the mirror. What is that? Is that just the sun or a bit of reflection? Now, it is a grey hair. All of a sudden, the panic sets in. Pull it out. Or maybe let it grow. <laughs> more and more people in their 20s are looking in the mirror and liking what they see. They're letting their natural grey shine through. Is this you? Let me know. Are you in love with your grey hair? Or doing everything you can to cover it up? Message in 0439 757 Shalala Madora has been speaking to a grey fluencer on her decision to embrace her natural hair colour.
6: I don't know about you, but I am seeing so many people on my socials talking about grey hair.
1: There are three reasons why you could be going prematurely grey and what you can do about it.
0: Are you starting to get a lot of grey hair and you're not sure what to do about them? Doing a full base colour is not for everybody.
1: First of all, let's remove the stigma of having grey hairs in your 20s or starting to see them when you're younger.
6: And it's kind of refreshing because heaps of them are talking about how to embrace the grey. People like Sarah Strange. I
5: share my journey and my experiences with going grey at what would be considered a younger age um,
6: on Instagram. Sarah is one of a growing number of grey influencers.
5: Yeah, I share tips and tricks, but mostly just to inspire and be um, a point of visibility. Sarah noticed she had grey hairs at just fourteen. My mum dyed her hair, my auntie dyed her hair, so I just kind of accepted it, like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going grey young. And um, I started dyeing my hair a couple of years
6: after that, maybe 16, 17. After dyeing her hair for years, Sarah started to question the whole thing. And then started toying with the
5: idea of stopping dyeing, which I did when I was 27, and I absolutely
6: haven't looked back at all. Okay, let's pause Sarah's story for a sec, because I think it's really important to explain why some people start going grey earlier than others. I've recruited an expert to help.
4: David Salinger, I'm a a director at the Australian Trichology Centre.
6: David is a trichologist, someone who specialises in scalp and hair care. As he explains, the pigment in our hair is created by something called melanocytes in our hair follicles just beneath the skin.
4: And they produce melanin, which moves up with the hair. That's what produces the colour in the hair.
6: We go grey when our bodies stop producing those melanocytes.
4: Hair can go grey or white um, due to oxidants attacking the melanocytes. To prevent that, basically, you would take antioxidants such as vitamins A, C, D and E, they're all antioxidants. They help prevent the damage to the cells.
6: So a lack of nutrients can make a difference. And so can your diet. Having an autoimmune disease can also stop the creation of melanocytes. And then there's that pesky word we always hear about, stress.
4: It has been proven now that stress can lead the hair to go white. And that's because stress affects the uh, sympathetic nervous system, which goes right to the hair bulge.
6: There's some good news, though, that can be reversed.
4: Once the stress is over, the the hair colour will normally recover.
6: But here's the thing. If you're otherwise healthy and start going grey heaps young, like Sarah, chances are there's not much you can do about it. You
4: know, some people do go grey young because of genetics. You know, their mother or father, the same thing happened.
5: And there's no way of reversing that. I was dyeing it about every three or four weeks. Uh, sometimes I would go to the salon and it would cost me around 100 British pounds a time.
6: Sarah Strange says dyeing her hair was time-consuming, expensive and super frustrating. So three years ago, when she was 27, she decided to stop. She thought people would make a big thing out of it. The, the negative reaction that I thought I was going to get was just in
5: my mind. Um, I've had such great feedback from people in my life and, of course,
6: people online. Sarah said there's still a lot of baggage associated with going grey, especially for women. When I look back, when I was dying my
5: hair, I was so unconfident and I was really moulding myself and that really shone through in how I
6: presented myself in the world. Now that Sarah is 100% grey, she looks hot as f**k. And she knows it. Even though my hair is grey and society
5: says I should look worse because of my confidence and because I'm really caring for my appearance and I'm caring for my hair a lot because I want it to look its best.
6: I actually think I look so much better. Sarah has this advice for anyone considering giving up on the dye jobs.
5: Just go for it, try it out. My, my number one point is always, you can dye it back. Um, and my gray hair looks so much better better than I thought it would. So you actually might be hiding something under your die that is really gorgeous
0: and beautiful. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, Shalala Madora with that report. Overwhelmed by the messages on the text line, people getting in touch saying, yeah, this is me. And we're loving it. Someone says, I'm a graduate teacher, and since I've started, my grey hairs take up most of my temples. At this point, I've completely embraced the greys. I think embracing it is very in right now. That is what we've been hearing. Jay from Ararat says, I've been going grey at the temples since 21. I've embraced it. Wish they were greyer, actually. (laughs) Someone else says, yeah, embrace the greys. I've been going grey since I was 20. Best streaks of wisdom. Someone else, ageing is a privilege. I wish more people accepted their ageing features. It's lovely to see people accepting this more nowadays. Another person loving my antique blondes. Someone else says, I got my first greys around 25. I'm now 30 years old and my partner loves my witch streak. I get a little grey stripe in my eyebrow too, which is kind of cute, that is. And somebody else says, "Nah, it's not grey. It's actually called ash blonde. Wear it with pride." Lots and lots of messages on going grey. We're also getting a heap of messages still on the driverless vehicle story. People either getting right behind this or not fans at all. Someone says, "We already had driverless vehicles. They were called horses." Jared from Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, all right. It involved a bit of driving, I guess. Someone else says, "We're try we're trialling a driverless bus that could take about six passengers here in Coff- Harbour in regional New South Wales. Uh, It felt really safe. That was from Josh. And someone else says apparently driverless cars can still have potentially dangerous reliability and accuracy issues. That is what we were hearing. There's still a lot of testing that's underway. Someone else says, let's just get electric first and then we can go all chitty chitty bang bang. (laughs) And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.